You see, today we're going to be studying from the story of Noah. Now, if you have never heard the story of Noah, if you don't know the story of Noah's Ark, that's okay. In a nutshell, here's what's happened. Humanity got to a point where sin was so bad, where sin had just crept across earth so much that God looks down and decides that there needs to be a punishment. And his punishment is to send a flood that wipes out everything. But in the midst of that punishment, God tells a man named Noah to build an ark, to build a big boat. And Noah and his family go on this boat along with two of every animal, and they are saved and protected through that flood. That's in a nutshell what the story is. And I was thinking about that story, and as I was thinking about that story, I was reminded of when I first started coming to Calvary Church. I first started coming to Calvary Church about 21 years ago, and I started volunteering. And the first place that I started volunteering was in our nursery. They let me in there. And so I started volunteering on Wednesday nights in our nursery. And if you would go around our classrooms at, uh, in Salerton, if you would go look at our different Calvary Kids classrooms, you'll see some really cool settings, some really cool atmospheres. And most of those places uh, were professionally done, and uh, you'll see some decals on the wall. But not the nursery hallway. The nursery hallway still has artwork on it that was done by some volunteers. And as you walk into there, you'll see artwork on the walls that was done when people took an overhead projector. Half of you don't even know what that is. And they projected the image onto the wall and they traced it and then they painted it and they did all, and it's beautiful work. And if you go into the nursery where I did, where I worked with the two-year-olds, you would walk in and you would be walking in to Noah's Ark. You would see the, the wooden uh, 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 like uh, beams across the walls painted on there. You'll see uh, possums and you'll see mice next to elephants, which is ironic. And you'll see giraffes and you'll see all of these different things. And if you look carefully, if you look carefully, this must have been painted around the time when The Little Mermaid first came out. Because if you look carefully, you will find Sebastian the Crab and Flounder the Fish. <laughs> and it's really cool. And I, I remember that. And it was a time that I really enjoyed. And the truth of the matter is, is that Noah's Ark is a, one of the most popular themes for a nursery. And I find that a little troubling, to be honest with you. I find that a little troubling because here's the deal. Let me recap what I just told you in a nutshell. God wiped out the earth. The flood was a catastrophic event. It was a catastrophic event. Imagine any catastrophic event, any tragic event you could think of in history. It cannot even come close to the story of the flood. There are people, young and old, who are now dead there are animals who are dead. There are all sorts, there is destruction and, and it is a horrific story. And I'm not trying to say this to condemn anyone who has a Noah's Ark nursery. Like if you, like you're going home and you're going to take the Playmobil down real quick. That's, that's not what I'm saying because actually there's a lot of grace and love in the story of Noah as well. What I am saying is that sometimes we sanitize the Bible so much that we miss out on some of the weight of the darkness and the heaviness and, the, and just the, the tragic nature of some of the stories. And if we do that sometimes, if we sanitize the Bible sometimes, 
we may miss out on the depth of the love and grace of God. And so I want us to just be reminded of that today. And so today we're going to take a look at the story of Noah. And we're in the middle of a series called Reset, where we're taking a look at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And what we've said so far in this series is this, that we live in a world that has decay and destruction. We live in a world that has wear and tear. And eventually there are times when you need to make a reset, that eventually you need to restart something. And this isn't new. It's actually something that's happened from the very beginning. In fact, as we study Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, the beginning of the Bible, what we see is that God creates and he creates everything good. But in just a short time, humanity rejects God and embraces sin. And what sets into the cycle is this cycle of reset, where God does not allow us to stay in the chaos, but he steps into the chaos and provides a reset over and over. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, these resets that happen over and over, where God continues to step into the chaos and bring us out of it. And all of these little resets point to the ultimate reset found in Jesus point to the ultimate reset found in Jesus. And so today we're going to be studying the book of Noah. And what we're going to be studying is three things. We're going to be learning about how God regrets, God resets, and God restarts. God regrets, God resets, and God restarts. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the Bibles in the seat rack here in, uh, uh, at Souderton. If you don't own one, take it home. It's our gift to you. We believe that the Bible is filled with life-changing truth, and so we want you to have one. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles here in Sowerton, it's going to be found on page 4. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What motivated God to send such a disastrous flood what motivated God to send this catastrophic event? Just a few chapters earlier, God creates, and when he creates, he looks at everything and he says, it is good. It is good. But then we get to Genesis chapter 6, and he wipes out everything. He wipes out everything. What happened? What happened? The motivation of the flood was this regret that God had. God regrets. God looks at the world. He looks at humanity and he sees sin spreading across as a cancer, spreading across, damaging all of the health of what he created. And, and God looks and it spreads out and, and every thought of humanity is evil. And God sees this and he has a response of emotion to this global mess that he sees. And that's unique and it's powerful. God has emotions. We read that in the Bible. And I think at times we want to think of God in a way that he's some sort of like 
Just this, this ball of energy, absent of emotions, or, or we look at him and we kind of diminish his personhood, almost as if emotions would make him weaker. Almost as if, if God had emotions, that's too human. Well, the reality is maybe our humanity is expressing the emotions in, imperfectly of a divine creator. God has emotions. And oftentimes we want to elevate him to a point where he doesn't, but he does. It's all throughout the Bible. And at times, if maybe you're, maybe throughout history, humanity would be okay with God or gods and their, their deities of, of lore or myths uh, throughout the ancient cultures or throughout ancient Greece or throughout ancient Rome, throughout history, maybe they could have emotions, but they're fickle. They're fickle. And so the deities that they worship just get annoyed with humanity or, or, or they just uh, like play with humanity or they just get angry all the time. And those emotions are, are passed down throughout history in the myths and lore of our history. In fact, there are, are actual other accounts of a global flood in other cultures. And those are the emotions that are kind of talked about in those accounts. That's not the emotion that we get in the account of Noah. There isn't this indifference to humanity. There isn't even this, this anger or rage. In the Bible, the flood didn't come about because of an apathy or annoyance towards humanity. What it came about was a motivation, feeling of regret. David Lamb is a biblical scholar and author, and he actually also attends our church here at Calvary Church. He's one of our members. In fact, he's one of our adult Bible fellowship or ABF teachers. And he wrote about this and he wrote in his book, he wrote this, human wickedness prompted an intense emotional reaction from God. And it's not what we might expect, divine wrath, but divine sorrow. God's regret is motivated by his intense love for his creation. The truth of the matter is, is that even God's punishments are motivated by his nature of love. Even the catastrophic punishment of the flood is motivated by love. God sees our sin and he regrets it. He is filled with sorrow. There's a deep sorrow. Our sin grieves God. And this regret spurs on this punishment. But in this punishment, God expresses his love. You see, the most surprising element in the story of Noah is that he refrains from complete destruction. That God refrains from complete destruction and he commands Noah to build an ark. The most surprising thing about this story should be the fact that God doesn't wipe out everything. The most surprising part of this story should be that there actually is an ark. God had the right to just wipe out everything, but he expresses his love in the midst of his punishment and judgment. And again, this is different from the other flood stories that are passed down through history in different ancient cultures. None of them, none of them have humanity saved by the God who is expressing judgment. Humanity is either saved through happenstance or humanity is saved through uh, the sheer willpower of of human beings in those stories or through a rival God's efforts. 
Nowhere in those stories does the one who pronounced judgment actually bring about the salvation. God saves humanity from himself. God saves humanity from himself. The very waters that wipe out everything and destroy everything are the very waters that carry the ark and keep it safe. And what God regrets expresses to us this is this deep sorrow of our sin. And our sin, while it grieves God, never causes God in his regret to leave us, leave us alone or have his love leave us. It is present even in his punishment. And so God sees all of our sin and he, he sees how wicked it is and he regrets and he pronounces judgment. And then what does he do? He resets. He resets. Genesis chapter seven, page five in the Bibles in the seat, uh, here at Calvary. Genesis chapter seven, verse 17 says this. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Again, what a tragic, catastrophic story. And what we get is this, this picture of of the world just being this formless shape again, this, this formless ball of water almost, this ball of chaos. Basically what we get in the story of Noah is an uncreation, an uncreation. Look at what we see at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, verse two. We see now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Do you get that picture that we see in Noah and the flood? It's like this. This is Plato. In case you were wondering. the beginning of Genesis, at the beginning of the story of humanity, at the beginning of the Bible, we find ourselves with this, this ball, this blob almost, this formless shape, this ball of water where God is hovering over. And when God creates, what does he do? He separates the water from the land. And when he does that, he begins to continue to create. And so he begins to create and he creates um, a giraffe. That one. And, and, and he creates, um, okay, he creates the snakes because that's what I know how to make. Uh, and he creates cows 
And then he creates birds and they're flying in the air. And he creates humanity and he creates people. And, he, and, he, and God steps back and he looks at it and he says, this is good. This is good. And then we reject God and we sin and we choose sin. And what happens is sin spreads like a virus, like a cancer across the earth. And God sees that every, every inkling in humanity's heart is of evil. And what does he do? He resets and he brings water and land back together. And the picture we get in Genesis, as we look at the story of Noah, is we go back. We go back to that formless shape, to that shape of chaos, to that shape of water. What does God do? He does an uncreation. He resets and starts over. Kind of. Kind of. Because there's still the matter of the ark. There's still the matter of the ark and its inhabitants. You see, there's a difference between God's acts of removal in the Bible and God's acts of reset. There are acts of removal in the Bible. God wipes out places. God wipes out people groups. There are acts of removal in the Bible. Those are different from God's acts of reset. God's acts of reset include a remnant. They include a remnant. They include a, a portion of his original creation that he redeems and saves. And the remnant only occurs because of God's grace and God's love. You see, Genesis 6 through 9 isn't really a story about Noah. It's a story about God. It's a story about God's reaction to the sin of humanity. It's a story about, God, about God's judgment because of that reaction of regret. But it's also a story of God's grace because of his powerful love. Noah did not deserve to live. Noah did not deserve to go on the ark. Now, some of you who have studied this story may argue with me right now. Some of you studying this story may say, well, when you read Genesis chapter six, it says that Noah was a righteous man. It was a righteous man. And that's why God allowed him on the ark. Noah is called righteous after the verse that says that God extended his favor to him. Noah is called righteous after God's grace is shown to him. Noah is called righteous in comparison to the people that he's around, not in comparison to the holiness of God. Noah's righteousness cannot be confused with sinlessness. Noah is not holy. Noah is righteous because God deemed him to be so. God is the one who decided to spare Noah. Noah didn't deserve to be that remnant. He didn't earn it. He was saved because of God's grace. The remnant in God's reset is because God chose to save humanity from himself. And the saving is due to God's grace and his love, not Noah's works. And we kind of want to look at it the other way though, right? We kind of want to look at it the other way and say, well, because Noah was a good guy, he was able to go on the ark. We kind of want to look at it that way. And the reason we want to look at it that way is because we want that to apply to our narrative. If we are good enough 
uh, if we have more good than bad, then we can also be saved. Somehow we can earn our way there. But that's not the case. That wasn't the case with Noah, and it's not the case with us today. Noah is mentioned in other parts of the Bible. The story of Noah is mentioned in other parts of the Bible. Let me read to you one of those passages. It's actually found in 1 Peter chapter 3, page 829. Page 829. Verse 20, it says, To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. It is the resurrection of Jesus that saves us. Once again, just as in the reset of Noah, God saves us from himself. But this time it isn't a boat that is built that brings about salvation. It is God himself in the arriving in the form of Jesus who brings about that salvation. Jesus who takes on the judgment and takes on the wrath of the reset and by doing so provides the grace and forgiveness of the reset. And it is Jesus who is the ultimate reset that Noah's reset points to. And so God created everything in Genesis 1 and 2. But then Genesis chapter 3 happens and God is rejected. Humanity rebels. Humanity chooses sin. And that sin spreads across humanity, spreads across the earth like a virus, completely destroying everything around us. And by the time we get to chapter six, God sees this total depravity and the sin of humanity and he regrets making humans. And in that regret, God pronounces judgment. He sends a flood and then God resets. It is basically the uncreation of Genesis. But God's love is so powerful that God saves a remnant in the ark because of God's grace and mercy. And when the water finally recedes, God restarts. God restarts. Page five, Genesis chapter nine. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth. If you've been with us as we've been studying Genesis, those words should remind you of another part of Genesis. They echo, they echo Genesis chapter one, verse 27, which is page one, by the way. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God restarts. He restarts. He had given a command, a covenant to Adam and Eve in Eden. And he gives a covenant to Noah now and and he commands them to go and be fruitful. 
Noah almost becomes almost like a second Adam. God restarts. But it's not the final restart. It's not the final reset. You see, we don't even get out of that chapter before we see scandal occur in the life of Noah. We don't even get out of that chapter before we see uh, hardship and consequence occur. The restart, the reset of Noah was not enough. And what happens is a continued process of corruption and sin. And so God needed another reset, an ultimate restart. And it is this ultimate restart that is needed if things were ever going to be made right. Adam couldn't do it. Noah, this almost second Adam, couldn't do it either. There was a need for someone else to step in and bring about that ultimate reset, that ultimate restart. There was a need for, if you will, a last Adam. A last Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. Jesus fulfills the promise of God to Adam and Eve, and he fulfills the promise to Noah. And it is through Jesus, this last Adam, that we find our ultimate restart. And as we wait for God's new creation of a new heaven and a new earth, we understand that it is one day that Jesus will come back and that he will restore everything. And it is through Jesus that the ultimate restart happens. Matthew chapter 24, page 676. We are talking about this ultimate restart. And Jesus is talking and he says this, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Tremper Longman is another biblical scholar and writer. He does not attend here and neither is he a teacher at one of our ABFs. But he says this about that passage. He says, the flood came suddenly and unexpectedly upon those who were caught up in the judgment of God. And so, says Jesus, will the future final judgment that will accompany his return. The flood, in essence, is therefore a preview of the final judgment. As such, it serves as an encouragement to God's people who are being oppressed by those who reject Christ, but also as a warning to those who will be judged. The judgment can come at any moment without warning. This is the tension that we are meant to live in as followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you live with the understanding that there will be a final judgment one day. 
There will be a final restart and that day will come unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. But that is not a reason for fear. It is not a reason for fear. In fact, it is a reason for encouragement. God provides salvation not through an ark, but through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we can be secure in the powerful love of God. We can be secure in that powerful love. But there is an urgency. There are many who need to be impacted by the gospel. Judgment can come at any moment without any warning. And we have been given a task to do in the meantime. Speak the gospel. Live the gospel. Because it is only through Jesus that we can be saved from that judgment. And somebody you know needs to hear that. Somebody you know needs to hear that. The judgment of Noah points to this final judgment where the ultimate restart will happen. And yes, if we are followers of Jesus, we do not live in fear. We are encouraged because we are saved by grace and love through Jesus, not through an ark, but through Jesus. But there is an urgency that we need to live in our lives because that judgment can happen in a moment. And there is someone that you know that needs to hear that life-changing truth of the gospel. So go tell them. Go live it out. Go bring the gospel to those that need to hear it. Because we live surrounded by people who desperately need it. And the only way they'll get it is if we bring it to them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, while this love is powerful, while this love is an encouragement, while this love brings us hope, while this love brings us peace, help us not to lose sight of what it brings us out of as well. Help us not to lose sight of the gravity of the setting that we were in when you chose to express your love, to express your grace. Help us not to lose sight of the gravity of the judgment for our sins. And while we celebrate and are encouraged by your grace in our lives, I ask you to fill us with an urgency and a passion to reach those that need to hear the gospel and have their lives impacted. Let it be so consuming in us. Let it be something that we cannot shake. Let it be something that we just, just eagerly desire to share with others, with our words, with our actions. That let it be something that just consumes our every thought of bringing the gospel to people who need it. That it overflow in us. And Lord, I ask you that you would bring about countless people who are impacted by the gospel and that this community and this country and this world will never look the same because they are so consumed with love for you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.